In case you guys haven't noticed, I'm a big fan of funny commercials. I, I love funny commercials. They end up on YouTube, and you can, uh, you know, you can count on funny commercials every year at the Super Bowl. That's when like the best commercials come out, and some people watch the Super Bowl, and maybe I'm one of them to an extent, uh, just to watch the commercials. So I, I love commercials. Every year, you know, the, these major multi-billion-dollar companies. Uh, their money doesn't go to waste. They pour millions and millions of dollars into their Super Bowl advertising campaigns. So you know it's, you know, you know there's going to be some good stuff there. Uh, for the Super Bowl last year in 2011, Chevy had this commercial. Uh, it was really funny, and it really only received a small amount of, of recognition. You know, if you were to Google, you know, best commercials of Super Bowl 2011. Uh, I don't even think this one was on there, and I don't remember the campaign lasting all that long after the Super Bowl. Um, in this hilarious commercial for the, the Chevy Sil uh, Silverado pickup, uh, this father is featured uh, going from one location to another, rescuing his son Tommy. Tommy's the name of, uh, of the commercial. Uh, and so this ad starts with, um, with this Chevy Silverado truck barreling down this dirt driveway um, to, to rescue the father, the father to rescue the son. The father is off to rescue his son from the bottom of a well. Uh, and I suppose, you know, that's a, a pretty bad place to be stuck, whether you're a kid or an adult. But it's a good thing dad had a Chevy Silverado, right? So he could come and, and rescue Tommy. And so the, the commercial goes from, from one of these scenarios to another, to another, to another, really fast, you know, jumping from one scene to another. Um, you know, the, the next one is uh, dad comes to rescue Tommy in a cave that's collapsed on him. You know, good thing he's got this Chevy Silverado. Then he has to, to rescue Tommy from a, a stray hot air balloon. Um, you know, and the, the next scene, the father's running down, uh, you know, he, he's at the ocean and he's running down the pier holding Tommy, saying, how did you get stuck in the belly of a whale as the whale comes crashing through the pier? Uh, back behind him, uh, and at the end, you know, the, the father is barreling off toward the mountains saying, I didn't even know this town had a volcano. You know, he's off to rescue Tommy again. Uh, yeah, volcano in the middle of the city. Good thing he had this, uh, this Chevy Silverado. But the truth be told, you know, I think uh, we can all relate at least to an extent to Tommy. I think we're all a little bit like Tommy. Left on our own, we are prone to find ourselves in some sticky and uncomfortable situations. And for some of us, I'm speaking more for myself than for anybody else that I know of here, for some of us, we've got this irresistible urge to find trouble from time to time. Like, we're, we're just going to go out and find it. Or maybe, uh, maybe it's a more accurate description to say we're magnets for trouble. It finds us, whether we want it or not. But the truth is that we often find ourselves in situations that are sticky or uncomfortable, whether or not it's by our own doing. And that's why the psalmist prayed to God and wrote, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. Psalm twenty-two, eleven. And along those same lines, Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Man, that's, that's true. If you've lived long enough and you've you know, been perceptive of your life enough, every day can bring a, a load of trouble, a lot of trouble. Each day definitely can have enough trouble of, of its own, so why add on tomorrow's troubles on today's is basically what he's saying there. And in fact, he promised his followers, Jesus promised his followers that in this world, there will be trouble. Following Jesus is not a ticket away 
from trouble. In fact, he guaranteed there will be trouble. But then he, he instilled them with courage. He encouraged them saying, take courage because I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. Like Tommy, you know, we sure could use a father to come running to our side, to our aid, with or without a Chevy, you know, Silverado pickup, and rescue us every time trouble arises in our lives. But we have something better than that. We have something better than a dad with a, with a Chevy pickup. We have an all-knowing, all-powerful God who promises in his word that he is a stronghold for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. And if you've ever found yourself in a sticky, troublesome, uncomfortable situation, only for God to pull you out of it in one way or another, maybe you can understand what Ethan the Ezraite was feeling when he wrote, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. That's Psalm 89.1. Have you ever wanted to say that? I'm just going to tell the world, God, about how faithful you are. Have you ever wanted to say that? Let me tell you how many times I praised God just this past week for his amazing faithfulness as he showed up just in the nick of time for these guys, these people in our congregation. God showed up just at the nick of time, just in the nick of time. I mean, they are a, they are a, a witness. This family is a witness to God's amazing faithfulness. And, and they had a front row seat for it. You know, this is nothing. Having a front row seat up here is nothing. Having a front row seat for God's faithfulness, for God getting you out of a sticky situation, man, that is a sight to behold. It's one thing to watch it from a distance. You know, we, we, we've watched it from a distance with these guys, but to actually be in the front row. It's kind of like, you know, when you go to, to SeaWorld, you know, you want to get splashed by, sea, uh, by Shamu, and so you sit in the front row. You know, if you're sitting way in the back, it's like, oh, okay, that, that's one thing. But if you're getting splashed, wow, you've really experienced it. Yeah, these guys have experienced God's faithfulness this week, front row. Uh, and it is awesome to watch as he lovingly steps in and steers us away from catastrophe and disaster and trouble and trouble. Now, while the Lord is always faithful, you know, if we're being honest, our faithfulness in return to him um, tends to waver at times. It tends to waver at times. In the previous passage that we studied, the Lord brought, um, brought Peter, James, and John up on the side of this mountain where he allowed them to get this, this glimpse, just for a few minutes, this glimpse of the glory of God after the kingdom has come. He had promised that some who were there would see it before they tasted death, and he was true to his word. He was, he was faithful. And in the middle of this incredible miracle, the, the transfiguration, where he becomes bright as the sun, right in front of them, and, and Moses and Elijah show up, right in the middle of this incredible miracle, uh, Peter gives us an indication that he's wavering in his faith again when he suggests that Jesus is basically on the same level as Moses and Elijah. He says, you know, let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, as if all three of those guys are on equal ground, when nothing could be further from the truth. If Peter had his way, man, it would have been trouble for everyone. If Jesus was on equal ground with everyone, we'd all be in trouble. But today we're going to see the trouble that the other disciples have gotten themselves into while Jesus, Peter, and John have been up on the side of this mountain while the mount, uh, you know, called the Mount of Transfiguration. We don't exactly know where that is. 
that's okay. We know what was going on up there, and that's what was significant. Now, before we start, keep in mind that Mark uh, has been sure to tell us about all of these miracles that Jesus has been working in his ministry, and he's jumped from one to another to another to another, uh, and he's only paused briefly a couple times to focus uh, to, to really zoom in and focus on Jesus' teachings. Of course, Jesus' teachings have been scattered throughout, but usually Mark uh, you know, kind of intermingles the miracles and the teachings so that, you know, that you, you've, you've got both going on at the same time. But for the rest of Mark's gospel, he's going to focus pretty much on the teachings of Jesus, and uh, he's only going to tell us about two more miracles uh, that happened before the crucifixion. And so over the course of the next chapter or so, he's actually going to give us some insight. Mark is going to give us some insight um, as to why the disciples keep finding themselves wavering in their faith. You know, where, where they'll have this moment of, of great faith and then they'll slip back. And, you know, kind of like the tide going in and out, you know, they'll, they'll waver even though they've seen these great miracles. And we're going to get some insight over the next chapter or so as to why that is. So without further ado, let's see what's going on as Jesus, Peter, uh, James, and John come down from the mountainside where Jesus gave them a glimpse of his glory in the transfiguration. So we pick it up at uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, where we read, When they, Peter, James, John, Peter, uh, and Jesus, Uh, When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, saw Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. So what we see is as as they come down from the mountainside is that the the other nine disciples, the guys who weren't up there to witness the, the transfiguration, They've found themselves in a little bit of a predicament, apparently, and it's serious enough predicament. It's a serious enough predicament that some teachers of the law uh, have shown up. Some scribes have shown up on the scene, and they're arguing with these nine disciples. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what this argument is about exactly, uh, but we can be sure that it has something to do with the authority of the disciples, or the lack thereof, because the disciples have tried to cast out a demon, as we're about to see, and they've failed miserably. They've fallen flat on their faces here. And I imagine that these, these teachers of the law, who, who, as we've read through Mark, we know they have a history of harassing Jesus, following him around, and looking for opportunities to scold or rebuke Jesus. Uh, and, and so I imagine that um, you know, these guys were thrilled to see the disciples failing in their efforts. You see, these guys, the, the, the teachers of the law, knew what the scriptures said uh, way better than, than any of the disciples did. I mean, no question about it. These guys knew word for word what the Old, uh, Old Testament scriptures said. And so if the disciples didn't have a means of demonstrating God's power or authority um, you know, in other ways, like by working miracles, Uh, the scribes um, would basically be taking target practice at the disciples' credibility right there in front of all of these people. So it's a bad situation that's that's brewing here. And what's interesting here is that while the disciples have, they're the ones that have really messed up here, kind of. You know, they're they're the ones who are are the center of attention and and failing. Um, And it's interesting to note that while they've gotten themselves into this situation with their audacity and maybe overconfidence, they're not the ones who run up to greet Jesus. 
You notice that? They're not the ones who are like, oh, Jesus, you're finally here. Wow, now you can, you can help us out here. We're, you know, we're not sure why this is working. No, the crowd gravitates toward Jesus. Apparently, the disciples stay right there with this boy that they've been trying to, uh, to help. So why are all these people rushing at Jesus? Why does, why does Mark tell us that the crowd is rushing at Jesus? Why are they amazed? Now, some have speculated that what happened is that there's this remnant of the transfiguration that's left over, uh, you know, that maybe he's, he's still, you know, in these glowing white garments, or maybe his, his face is radiant, you know, kind of like Moses, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and he, you know, he had this glow, the glory of God, you know, they knew that he was in the presence of the glory of God, but I don't think that that's what's going on here with Jesus. Because if you'll remember, he had told the three disciples who were up there on the mountain with him, keep this a secret. I don't want anybody else to know about this until after. Now, after the resurrection has happened, then this can be made public knowledge. But until then, this is a secret. And so if Jesus is coming down and he's, you know, in, in these garments that are white as the sun, uh, the, the secret's out. You know, everybody knows, whoa, what happened? And that's not what, what's happening here. Nobody's saying, whoa, Jesus, what launderer are you going to, man? I, I got to get some clothes cleaned over there. You know, that's not what's going on here. So I, I don't think that there's a remnant of the transfiguration on Jesus. I don't think that that's, uh, that's what's going on here. Um, with that said, I think it's doubtful that the multitudes were drawn because of his, of his radiance. I think that what we're seeing here is that some of the people are, you know, they, they know what Jesus can do. They're starting to catch on a little bit. They were typically in awe of Jesus's miracles. What we've seen throughout Mark is, you know, whenever Jesus is working miracles, there's a crowd. You know, people are, are rushing to see what's, what's going on. Uh, and, you know, some people, a few, have been in awe of his teachings. But now, this crowd is apparently just in awe of his presence. Just in awe of his presence. Probably because, as, as we're about to see, they know what Jesus uh, has been said to be capable of doing. Uh, and word is spread. People know who Jesus is and what he can do. And they are in awe just to be close to him. So let's continue, verses 16 to 18. And he, Jesus, asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. Now, Think back with me. I'm, I'm thinking a couple chapters back here, a few chapters back. Think back with me for a minute. We know that the disciples were given the power and authority to go out, proclaim this, this message of repentance, and to cast out unclean spirits You know, a few chapters back, right? Uh, Jesus had sent them out in pairs to do that. But what happened when they got back? If you think back, what happened when they got back? They were so full of themselves. These guys... Their egos were blown up and ready to pop. You know, they thought that they had basically become equals with Jesus. And when they figured out, oh, wait a minute, we're not, their hearts were filled with bitterness. So when they came back before, you know, it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't something that was permanent. Their authority to do this, I would, I would argue, was, uh, was only temporary. So their failure here to succeed in casting out this unclean spirit in this situation, gives us good reason to believe that the authority that Jesus had given them was, 
was just a temporary thing. He's like, this is a glimpse of the authority that you will have, but maybe they don't have it yet. We're going we're gonna to explore this more as we go through this. But this is a great example of the limitations of, of positive thinking. Uh, some people are convinced that if you believe something enough, it'll happen. Uh, and what I always want to say is, well, I want to believe that there's no such thing as the power of positive thinking. So if I believe that strongly enough, what's going to happen? Wow, I think the whole, the whole earth would blow up. But, you know, obviously um, that's, that's not the case. The, the power of positive thinking has limitations. Um, what did the disciples expect to happen here? You know, they expected something to happen, right? They expected that they would be able to, to do what they had done before. They'd be able to exercise this demon, get this demon out of this, out of this boy. But what was the basis of that expectation? That's, that's really the question. What was the basis of that expectation? In other words, what were they trusting in to make it happen? That's the real issue here, I think. And what we see here is the result of the disciples relying on their own power and their own authority. And with that being the case, man, what do you expect? What do you think is going to happen when, when you're operating outside of your own authority? Things that you can't do on your own. The disciples are, in essence, operating outside of their jurisdiction here. They don't have the authority to do this out of their own power, on their own, from their own power. And that's the reason, as we're going to see, that's the reason that they have failed miserably. And because of their audacity or stupidity, you pick the word, um, you know, they've gotten themselves into a little bit of a sticky situation here. They've, they've found trouble. Now on the surface, if, if, you, if you listen to the description of what's going on with this boy, on the surface, surface it sounds like um, you know, the, the child probably has a case of severe epilepsy, right? Uh, the symptoms sound remarkably similar uh, to, to, to that of, of epilepsy, but I would dismiss that possibility based on some of the things uh, that the father is going to report in a moment. For example, the spirit slams the boy to the ground. When, when, it, when the onset happens, when it happens, um, the, the demon slams the boy to the ground, and the Greek word indicates a sudden, violent, forceful action. Now, th- there is a Greek word for fall, you know, for, for like falling down. There, there is a Greek word for that. That's not the word that he uses, and more significantly, because Luke is a doctor, that's not the word that Luke uses when he's describing this either. Luke also describes it, describes it as the boy being slammed to the ground. Now, if anybody would recognize epilepsy, it'd be Luke. Luke's a doctor, but that's not how he describes it. They both report, Mark and Luke, both report that the boy gets slammed to the ground rather than simply falling to the ground. So that's the first reason that I don't think it's epilepsy. The second reason is that the boy is mute uh, all of the time, not just when you know, there's an onset of, of these symptoms, not just when he's foaming at the mouth after being slammed to the ground. He is always mute. Uh, thirdly, the, the father is going to tell us that the spirit has seized on opportunities to kill this child or the, this boy. We don't know how old he is, but there seems to be an indication that he's probably a teenager. Uh, but the, the, the spirit has seized on opportunities to kill him, and the, the father has been there to rescue his son time after time. So there's a destructive intent here. Whenever he's around these elements, fire or water, it seems to onset and throw the boy, slam the boy toward those things. Uh, the fourth reason I don't think it's uh, epilepsy is that the Bible makes a distinction 
between epilepsy and demonic possession. Actually, in the very same verse. So I, I think that the, the fact that there's a recognition that they're completely different things eliminates the possibility that this is epilepsy. And fifth and, and finally, the most significant thing is that Jesus could have said, oh, you know, this boy doesn't have a spirit. He's, he's just got epilepsy. But that's not what Jesus says. That's not what he does. No, Jesus recognizes that there is a supernatural occurrence here. There is a supernatural, a, a demonic force at work in this situation. So this is not epilepsy. It's not. So apparently this father came looking for Jesus and when he saw the, the nine disciples there, he, he must have recognized them, um, but seeing them, he knew that Jesus was probably in the vicinity. Jesus couldn't be far from where they are, but for whatever reason, uh, the disciples accepted the responsibility of taking care of this demon, trying to cast it out, and they've been embarrassingly unsuccessful. You know, they, they could have said, well, you know, Jesus and, you know, the other guys, they'll be back, you know, shortly, just hang around, you know, Jesus can take care of this, but that's not what they've done. The guy came looking for Jesus, and they said, oh, we're good enough. Catch that? But what we have here is a boy who has been shut off from the world, isolated in a world of silence, deafness, and muteness by the enemy of God. And how typical is it of Satan to attempt to deprive a person of connection with other people? It's typical. Isolation is not the way that God made us. God created Adam and he said, it's not good that man be alone. It's not good, but that's what the enemy of God is trying to do here. And the only way that this boy would be able to learn how to communicate and the only way that this boy would be able to learn how to pray uh, would be if God would intervene with some type of miracle here. Now, before we continue, I want us to, to zoom out. Um, you, you guys ever look at the far side? You ever watch the far side cartoons or you know, comic strips? Uh, there's this one where um, this, this ancient scientist is looking at a woolly mammoth through a telescope, and you know, the, the, you know, the telescope is probably 15 feet high, and he's looking through his telescope, and he says, oh yeah, it, it's a woolly mammoth. You know, duh, like you couldn't have seen that from, from far away, but that's, what I, that's the view I want to give us here. Not where we're looking through the microscope, but where we're stepping back and looking at the whole context here, so we can see how this fits in with the context of the passages that have led us up to this point. Uh, Jesus and his, and his Three disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, were just in the presence of the glory of Jesus, and they were surrounded by what we call the Shekinah glory of God. They were in this place where all that there is is God's righteousness, God's holiness. It's a place void of evil and wrongdoing. And all of a sudden, now, as we zoom into this passage, we're in the presence of an incredible evil you see the contrast? The glimpse of, of glory on the Mount of Transfiguration was a glimpse of life in the kingdom of God. What we have now is an existence in which suffering and evil are not only a reality, but they are prevalent. And so Mark's giving us this contrast between a glimpse of Jesus' glory in the kingdom and this glimpse of hell, where evil and suffering are the norm. The question is, the question that Mark is implicitly asking is, which do you prefer? Which would you rather be a part of? The glory or the suffering? There's really a contrast that's going on here. See, every person has to make that choice. 
I choose to live for the kingdom of God. That's my choice, thank you very much. But my final thought on that uh, before we move on is this. Do you know somebody who doesn't belong to Jesus, who doesn't know Jesus? What exi- which existence between these two that Mark's giving us a contrast for, which existence do you want them to experience? That's really the question. You, I mean, you would choose the kingdom for yourself, right? But the question boils down to this. What are you willing to do to help that person prevent them from, from missing the kingdom? What are you willing to do? So let's move on and see how Jesus handles this situation. Verse 19. And he, Jesus, answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. The boy. Bring the boy to me. So the disciples, you know, they, they just haven't wrapped their mind around the fact <coughs> that Jesus isn't going to be there forever with them. He's not going to, this ministry on earth isn't going to continue as it is forever. He's not going to stay with them for long, but the people obviously had no idea about the impending death of Jesus either. But let me say this much, even in the midst of what's turned out to be a frustrating moment for Jesus, he's still nevertheless compassionate. He is still faithful to step in and respond to their prayers to their requests, the father's request. Now, while the father may have shown up to get his son healed, everyone else apparently uh, is there just to see Jesus do something amazing. We're not, we're not exactly sure. Uh, maybe they came with the man. Maybe, you know, they've been gathering as the disciples were trying to do it. We don't know, but there are a lot of people there. But Jesus is exasperated because what he sees as he looks out across the people and maybe even his own disciples is a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith. He knows that the time of the miracles in his ministry is coming to an end sooner than later. And once the miracles are gone, then what? Then what? If miracles won't convince somebody to respond in faith to Jesus, what will? What will? If miracles won't do it, watching it, if that doesn't elicit a response of faith, what's going to do it? And if there's one thing that frustrates and exasperates Jesus... Sometimes the Bible tells us it amazes him. It's lack of faith, absence of faith. So who's on the receiving end of this rebuke? I'd say that most of the people on the scene probably are. The crowd, uh, the disciples, maybe the father, definitely the teachers of the law. The disciples did have faith, but the reason that they failed was because they had put more confidence, more trust, more faith in their own ability than they had in God. You know, they'd seen this type of thing on multiple occasions while they've been uh, going around with Jesus. They've seen Jesus do it several times before. They've done it themselves when Jesus told them, you have the authority to do this. You know, so they've seen this stuff done. And so they slipped into this, this trap of a mindset, a ritualistic mindset, where you, you think that if you say the right thing or if you perform the right action, uh, you know, the result will be the same as it always has been. And that's, that's why, you know, like when I was a dealer in Las Vegas, you know, dealing card games and, and dice games and stuff, you know, people bring these, these little things or they'll, they'll have an action that they'll do before every hand or things like that because they think, okay, one time I did this before a hand was dealt and I won big. So if I do this again, uh, this, is, this is what's going to happen again. It'll repeat itself. But that's not how it works. 
especially with God, especially with, with acting God, asking God uh, to act. And that's why everyone, pretty much everyone there is on the receiving end of this rebuke. But again, despite his frustration, Jesus is filled with compassion. And so he instructs that the boy be brought to him. Let's continue, verses 20 to 22. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, when the boy saw Jesus, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, see there's that word, falling, not being slammed, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If there's anything that you can do, Jesus, help us. So as soon as this spirit, this unclean spirit, this demon, sees Jesus, it knows what time it is. It it knows party's over, and so basically it tries to get in one last attack, one last hurrah, and it's kind of strange to see that Jesus just kind of stands by watching for a moment, asking the Father, how long has this been happening? You know, Jesus doesn't immediately rebuke this demon. He kind of stands back and talks to the Father while this is going on. He asks, how long has this been happening? And this, this kind of seems like a strange thing for Jesus to do, but I don't think he's asking because he doesn't know. That's not, usually that's, that's not why Jesus is asking questions. He's leading people someplace. All the questions, if you go through the gospel narratives, when Jesus asks questions, he knows what the answer is. He's trying to lead everyone else to the same answer that he already knows. So he's not asking because he doesn't know. I think he's asking so that the people who are gathered can hear from the Father's mouth exactly how serious, how dire this situation is. Right from the Father's mouth, so that there's no doubt in their minds that this is something serious. And I think Jesus wanted the disciples, the disciples are are nearby, the Father is nearby, and what we're going to see is everybody else is kind of at a distance at this point. But I think he wanted the disciples to see what the enemy of God is capable of doing, both physically and spiritually. And I think he wants to make it clear to, to, to them, to the, the people who are gathered, that he's the one doing it. I think that's the reason he waits, so they can see, wow, th- this is just going on and on and on. What's going to bring this to an end? You ever, you ever watch somebody suffering and you're like, wow, when is this going to end? I had a roommate who was an epileptic, and I, I remember thinking, man, how long does this go on? It, it goes on, it goes on. And, and so Jesus is letting it go on, so that they see, yeah, somebody needs to step in and stop this. He wants them to know, and he wants us to know, that he is faithful, and that his faithfulness is our only hope, his faithfulness. It's something for, you know, for someone to say, you know, hey, I'm your only hope, but it's quite another for them to actually step in and prove it right in front of your eyes. And so the father reveals that this boy has had this spirit since childhood, and he had believed that Jesus would do something to help, that Jesus could do something to help. That's why he brought the boy to him in the first place. But the failure of the disciples has cast a shadow of doubt in this man's mind. And it's as if, it's, you know, it's out of this heart that's filling up with skepticism that this man pleads for help. If you're able to do anything, help. If 
you can do anything. Let's see how Jesus responds to that. Verses 23 and 24. And Jesus said to him, if you can, like you can't believe that this guy is saying this, but we're going to get there. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Now it might seem as though Jesus is rebuking him by saying, if you can, like, are you kidding me? That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not rebuking this man. I think that Jesus is challenging him to refocus his trust, refocus his belief, his faith in Jesus. Jesus is saying, you know what? You know, this isn't a matter of whether or not I can do something here because I, I can. No, this is a matter of where, where your trust is, where your faith is, and is it in the right place? That's what this is all about, not whether or not I can do this. And with those words, Jesus has revealed uh, the cause of failure that the disciples experienced. He says, anything is possible to him who believes. Well, the disciples, what about them? If anything's possible, no. This is why it's a failure on behalf of the disciples, because their trust wasn't in the right place. They were acting independently of God. Nothing is impossible if you are trusting God. Our trust or our faith, it doesn't manipulate God, by the, by the way, just so we're clear on that. Uh, God isn't like you know, a, a dog doing tricks for a, for a doggy treat or anything like that. But God is faithful to act in his own way and on his own time frame, in his own ways to work out the good of those who love him. What Jesus is doing here is pointing out that this father just has a poor understanding of God's faithfulness. And so by, do, by having this understanding of God's, uh, the lack of God's faithfulness, he had in his own mind placed limitations on God's mercy. And I, I, love, I love the honesty of the father at this point. You know, this is what we call brutal honesty, you know what brutal honesty is? Brutal honesty is, um, you know, honesty, honesty despite the fact that there might be embarrassment. Honesty despite the fact that it might hurt somebody else uh, or, or one's self. The father openly admits that he's not so sure about Jesus at this point. He came in belief, but after seeing the disciples fail, a lot of that belief has been replaced by skepticism and doubt. And he's completely honest about it. You see, it's, it's typical for us to start out believing that God will do something. You know, there, there's, there's trouble brewing, and we see it brewing. And so we believe that God's going to do something, but then when, when we don't see it happen in our time frame, you know, when we're expecting it to happen, we start wondering, you know, God, you know, when are you going to show up here? When are you, you going to intervene here and make something happen? When are you going to rescue me? And, you know, when, when we end up waiting a little bit longer than we expect... And longer and longer and longer. We, we go from, uh, from believing that God will act to wondering when God will act to wondering if God will act. And eventually it's easy for us to reach a point where we say, you know what, God, I'm, I'm, I'm just not so sure uh, that you're going to help out here anymore. It's easy for us to slip into that. And Jesus is trying to divert him away from letting the, the, the gas tank of his faith, you know, going from strong faith to, to complete unbelief. He's trying to prevent the man from letting the gas tank get too low. That's where the father is. He, he's, he's going toward the E. He's questioning God's faithfulness. At the same time, however, he recognizes 
and he's willing to be honest about the fact that, the man, that this father is wavering in his faith. He says, I, I know which way I'm headed, so help me. He asks for help with that only. Help, help my unbelief. He realizes that the belief is what's going to make it happen. That, that, that's what God is looking for here. And so he says, okay, fine. Just help my unbelief, and then we'll deal with the other stuff once we get to that point. And the irony here, there, there's, there's a lot of irony going on here. Here's this man who's own. this is his first interaction with Jesus. He's only just now met Jesus for the first time that we know of, and he, he's being this straightforward and this honest about the doubt in his heart and his mind. If only the disciples had had the same humility. I mean, they've been with Jesus for, for how long now? You know, at least you know, a couple of years. They've been with him for, for a while now, and either they have yet to realize that they have the same struggle that the Father has with unbelief and skepticism and doubt, or they don't have the courage to ask for help. But this guy does. This guy does. See, the Father understood what Jesus was saying right away. And in, in a lot of the ancient manuscripts for this passage, uh, the Father even addresses Jesus as Lord. And if you're reading out of the KJV or, or the NKJV, it's reflected in there. But uh, most of the transcripts, he, they, he doesn't address him as Lord. But maybe he does. We're, we can't be entirely sure. But the Father has shown the type of faith that's necessary for true discipleship and for true growth. His confession is one of faith and also of a recognition of the weakness of his faith. Now let's be honest. None of us here has a perfect faith. Not one of us. Not one of us has a perfect faith. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, according to the book of Hebrews, and our growth in faith is something that's constantly in flux. Just like the waves coming in, going out, coming in, going out. It's constantly in a process of being renewed and strengthened and then something happens and we start leaning away from it just a little bit and then we get strengthened and it's kind of a back and forth battle. The question is, are you humble enough to confess and address the cracks and the weak points in your faith? Confessing and addressing our weaknesses that's where real growth takes place. I mean, for the person who, in their mind, who already knows it all, there's no room for self-improvement. There's no room for education, except for them educating others, right? We all love being around people like that who are always looking to improve others because they already know everything, right? Uh, and I'm saying that because I used to be that type of person, um, just being completely transparent and honest with you guys, uh, that I used to think I had it all together, I had it all figured out, and nope. I figured out sooner or later, oh, no, I don't. I've got a long way to go. Uh, in the movie, The King's Speech, anybody seen The King's Speech? It was movie of the year a couple years ago. King George the, the Sixth is leading the country of, of England, but he has this speech impediment. And initially, he refuses to address the problem, uh, and, and so he, he acts as if there isn't an issue at all, uh, and the treatment wouldn't be necessary, but eventually he agrees to work on it and he overcomes it. He, he perfects his, his speech. But first, in order to do that, he had to humble himself enough to address the cracks and the weak points. And so our responsibility is to do spiritually what he had to do physically, confess and address 
the weak points in our faith. There's no shame in it because we've all got them. We've all got them. Belief and, and disbelief will often coexist in our hearts, but the solution is to be honest about it. To, to be transparent with God. He sees it anyway, so just confess it to him. He knows what's going on. It's not like you're going to blindside him, like he's going to be surprised. You, know, you, can, you can surprise a person with bad news, but you can't surprise God with bad news. So the solution is to be honest about it and to focus on Jesus' faithfulness and his ability, what he can do, rather than what we can do. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to ask Jesus to strengthen your faith. You, you'll be surprised at the ways that he will answer that prayer. But know this, he is faithful. He is faithful. Even when we are wavering in our own faith toward him, he is still nevertheless faithful to us. Listen to what Paul uh, wrote to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It might sound kind of weird, but the image here is of the believer, the person who follows Jesus, being grafted so solidly into Jesus that for him to be unfaithful to us in response to our unfaithfulness to him would be the same as being unfaithful to himself. Romans chapter 6, verse 5 tells us that through faith we've been united with God. And that term united in the Greek is actually a gardening term for grafting. It means being planted together. So the fact that Jesus can't deny himself is a promise of his faithfulness to us, even in seasons when we're wavering, when we're struggling with our own faith in him. Why do you think Jesus never gave up on the disciples? I mean, these guys have blown it time after time after time. They've messed up. Their faith continues to waver. It seems more and more as they go on, but Jesus hasn't given up on them. I mean, Jesus is, is continually faithful toward them, and he, he, never, he never throws in the towel. He never reaches the point where he says, you know what, guys? I have had it with your lack of faith. That's it. Sayonara. I'm out of here. You guys are on your own. I'm done with you. He never reaches that point. I mean, we would think that he would, because, you know, if you hired somebody and they kept messing for, for two years now, they, they keep messing up, you know, you'd be like, you know, we're going we're gonna to put you in the mail room so that you can't, you know, or, or something like that. We're going to give you some menial job, you know, that's going to really encourage you to just quit because we don't want you around anymore. But that's not the way that Jesus works. He's faithful, despite our unfaithfulness at times. You know, you know people will often be offended by brutal honesty, but God is pleased with the transparency, the brutal honesty that the Father has here. That's how the cracks and the weak points in our faith get the attention and the repair that they need. So how does Jesus respond here? Back to our text in Mark, verses 25 to 27. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit. See, the crowd at some point was, was far away. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most, most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. See, the fact that Jesus 
had withdrawn from the presence of the crowd at some point is made pretty clear here. We're not sure when it happened, but the crowd hasn't seen all of, or heard all of the things that are going on here. It seems likely that some did, but not all of them. Remember that, that Jesus had told the teachers of the law, the Jewish leaders, uh, that the next sign that they would receive would be the sign of Jonah, the resurrection, right? He told them that that would be the next sign that they would see when they asked for a sign. And so it seems extremely reasonable to conclude that at least they weren't there to witness all of this. And again, you know, this is, this is pretty typical of Jesus. He, he's doing things like this. He's, he's doing things away from the crowd as a way of preventing his ministry from becoming something of a circus act. And so when the crowd of people are coming over suddenly, Jesus quickly rebukes the spirit before they get there, commanding it to come out and to never return. And the boy responds with a shriek. And the shriek that comes out of this boy is, is, is also significant because the boy had been deaf and mute, meaning this is the first sound he's made maybe since childbirth. We don't know. He has made no noise since we don't know when, but here he shrieks. And as soon as the spirit leaves the boy's body, the boy is so physically exhausted, so drained, that his body goes limp as if it's lifeless, which leads many in the crowd to conclude that the boy was, was dead. They come up and all they see is this boy laying there limp, and they're thinking, well, he, he looks like he's dead. But Jesus takes the boy by the hand, and the boy stands up. As a consequence, or as a benefit of Jesus' faithfulness, when he restores a person, he restores them completely, entirely. The boy has no power on his own to stand, but because of Jesus, he does. The disciples tried to do something without Jesus, and they failed. They couldn't stand under the pressure. And this passage ends with a very interesting conversation that takes place later on. You know, we don't know how long Jesus stuck around in front of the crowd. He, he probably stayed around to, to teach them something, but we don't know exactly. You know, maybe he left immediately, maybe he didn't. I'd say he probably didn't, but we don't know. But eventually, it was time to go home, and so this conversation ensued. We read in verses 28 and 29. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. They didn't want to ask this question in front of everybody else. They're asking him privately, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now, I find it really interesting um, that a lot of people have interpreted this to mean that some types of demons come out by prayer, as if to imply that there are some that don't come out by prayer. So Jesus is not saying, you've got to pray for this type of demon if you want this type of demon to come out. That's not what Jesus is saying here. How can we be sure? Well, first of all, because Jesus didn't pray to get this demon out. Jesus didn't say, oh, you know, Father, you know, by your mercy. He doesn't pray, but the demon comes out. So the prayer, a literal prayer where you're saying words and so on and so forth, like we think of prayer, that's not what Jesus has in mind here. Jesus is pointing back to the disciples' lack of faith, lack of reliance on him as the reason that their efforts were met with dismal failure. Their question, look at their question. Their question reveals their weakness. They ask, why could we not drive it out? Boom, there you go right there. You answered the question yourself, guys. When they failed... 
they resorted to, to arguing with these teachers of the law, you know, who, who show up to rebuke them or correct them or humiliate them or whatever. So the, these disciples engage in this, this argument back and forth with the teachers of the law rather than hitting their knees and pleading with God to act, pleading with God to intervene. The lesson for them and the, and the lesson for us too is that God's power must be relied upon constantly. Jesus is revealing for us that, that prayer is more than, than just saying a few words. It's more than bowing your head and holding hands before you say a meal. That, that's a type of prayer, but that's not the type of prayer that Jesus is asking for. Prayer is a state of being in fellowship and constant communication with God. If you think that prayer is nothing but talking to God, man, you are missing the entire point of it. If you think that you need to do a certain thing or say a certain thing or go to a certain place to pray, man, you are missing it. That's not what it's about. You know, when Paul encourages his audience in Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. He wasn't encouraging them to constantly be running their lips. He's not saying, you know, keep, keep your mouths running, keep the motor running. No, he's saying constantly be in a state of fellowship with God in your spirits. It means constantly seeking Him. It means seeking His will, being obedient to Him. It means yielding to Him. It means being in fellowship with Him wherever you go. That's what He's talking about here. Jesus is talking about a lifestyle of prayer here, or a lifestyle of worship, we might call it. Not a bunch of words, not a formula that needs to be said. He's talking about a lifestyle of being in fellowship with God. That's where the, the, the ability that Jesus had to perform miracles came from. He was constantly in fellowship with the Father. He was constantly seeking to do the Father's will, and he even said so. He was constantly relying on the power of the Father. He's talking about a faith that's alive. He's talking about a faith that's vibrant and active, living. That is a lifestyle of prayer. And my hope is that that's what you want. More fellowship with God. A deeper fellowship with God. And my my prayer, my hope is that that's why you're here this morning. That's the type of life that God designed you to live, to experience. And if you want to live life to the fullest and experience the type of life that God designed you to live and to experience, you have got to quit relying exclusively on your own power, on your own ability. You have got to learn to rely on Him and to be in fellowship with Him without ceasing. You know, as we look back over the past, I don't know, three or four lessons all the way back to Jesus saying, you know, we, we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. You know, the point in each lesson is the same thing. You know, if, if you look at your, at your life and the one that God has for you, the life that you have on your own is like an old clunker of a car. It's broken down. It's not going to get far. Eventually, it's going to break down. Trade it in for this new life that God offers by faith in his son Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Even when we're wavering, even when our faith isn't as strong as we know that it should be or as, as, as strong as we want it to be, understand this much. He is faithful. His love endures 
forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this story and uh, the things that we can learn from this narrative. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us right now and show us the weaknesses. Show us where we are faltering in our faith. Help us to be transparent. Give us the courage just to be honest and vulnerable with you about the points where we're faltering. And we pray that through life experience, through you intervening in our lives, we would learn to rely on your power rather than our own. Lord, we understand that that is the type of life you created us to experience. And I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would lead us to experience life to the fullest in fellowship with you the way that you designed it. In Jesus' name, This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.